You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Let me ask you this as we start. Uh, when you hear the word unity, what do you think of? You know, I mean, chances are when you hear the word unity, you know, maybe, maybe you think of the lack of unity in, in the church today. Maybe you think of, of the division among different churches today, right? You know, uh, uh, I told you before about the Methodist pastor in the small farm town. Uh, the, the, in fact, it was such a small town, there was only one other church in the whole town, the, a small Baptist church. Now, one day the, the, the Baptist pastor died, so they asked the Methodist pastor if he had performed the funeral because he was the only other pastor in town. Well, he wasn't sure if he could, so he called his denominational headquarters and said, hey, you know, is it okay for a Methodist to, to bury and, and do the, the, the funeral for, for a Baptist pastor? And they answered and said, sure, you bet, bury all the Baptists you can. <laughs> so maybe that's what you think of. Uh, you, you know, but, but chances are when you, when you hear the word unity, chances are you do not think of the Jewish city of Hebron. Well, you should, because did you know that the the name Hebron is a Hebrew name that literally means unity? And I bring that up because the city of Hebron is mentioned by name at least five to six different times in this morning's passage. It's one of the key words in this passage. And it's it's important uh, because remember, last week we saw that the nation of Israel at this point was a divided nation. Remember, uh, David had had just become the king of the south, the king of Judah. But meanwhile, Ishbosheth, who was Saul's remaining son, he now becomes the king of the north up in Israel. And so it's a divided nation. They're on the brink of civil war. And it's with that context in mind that the theme of this chapter, the theme of chapter three, and it's the title of our message is unity, refuge, and forgiveness. So this chapter really has three themes, unity, refuge, and forgiveness. But now as we look at the first five verses of chapter three, we first of all see disunity in the city of unity. Verse one, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And, and sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second was uh, Keliab uh, of Abigail, who was the widow of, of, uh, of Nabal of Carmel. And third was Absalom, the son of Maach, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. And fourth was Adonijah, the son of Hagit. And fifth was Shepatiah, the son of Abital. And sixth was Ethriam uh, of Eglad, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Now remember, last week we, we sort of looked at the spiritual application of, of, of verse 1, where it says that, that David grew stronger and stronger, but, but, but Saul, the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And we mentioned last week that this sort of speaks of, uh, of, of our battle between the flesh versus the spirit, our old nature versus our new nature. But now this morning, we're, we're going to kind of look at the practical application of this. Now, we should keep in mind that in that day, a a, a king's power was often measured, directly measured, by how many wives he had and also how many sons he had. How many wives and how many sons the king had. And, And so the picture here is that David's family was growing and growing, so he was getting stronger, whereas Saul's family was shrinking and shrinking, so he was getting weaker. Something else from that that culture we should keep in mind was was that in that day, oftentimes peace treaties were made between two different kingdoms through marriage. The idea is that that when when you married uh, the the daughter of another king, um, then then, then you were entering, entering into an alliance, a peace treaty that could not be broken because you were now a part of each other's family. 
And so you, you made a peace treaty through marriage, which could explain why David now has six different wives. And so really the, the idea is, is that David was, was using worldly wisdom. He, he, was, he was using the ways of the world to advance and to prosper his kingdom, to, to get his kingdom stronger and stronger. And so when we read these words that say, David grew stronger and stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And then we read all the names of his wives and his sons. This was much more than just a, a, a boring genealogy filled with names that are hard to pronounce. Really what, what this is is, 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 is it's letting us know that David grew stronger and stronger, but as he grew stronger and stronger, he also had a weakness. You might say he was a strong man with a she weakness. And listen, David knew that, that, that polygamy was wrong according to the scriptures, according to the word of God. I mean, he would have known that, that Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17 said, neither shall he, the king, multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. J. Oswald Sanders commented on it and said, David's greatest fault lay in his yielding to the passions of the flesh. In fact, that was his downfall. David's downfall was the passions of his flesh, as it's fully illustrated uh, when, with, with his fall with Bathsheba later on in our study. In fact, you know, I, I remember when I first entered into the ministry, I first became a youth pastor and an assistant pastor back in 1993. Uh, entered into the ministry you know, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a young man, and, and, and one of the first things I did was I sought out the counsel over at Crossroads Calvary Chapel of, a, of another assistant pastor, somebody who was a seasoned veteran of the ministry, been in the ministry for decades. So we went out to lunch, and, and he gave me some sage counsel, gave me some sage wisdom, and he told me that, you know what, if you want to serve in the ministry for a long time, you've got to avoid the three G's. I was like, the what? The three G's, girls, gold, and glory. He says, he says, those three, the three G's will be the downfall of your ministry. You have to avoid the three G's. Well, that was David's struggle, the three G's. He was, he, 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 he in a word, his struggle was lust. Now, a few weeks ago, I shared with you the recent study that says that 99% that of all men struggle with lust, and the other 1% struggle with lying. It's, it's a true story. And what did Jesus say about lust? Remember, Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 29, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever even looks at a woman to, to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Then he goes on and, and says that if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And so in effect, you know, Jesus is saying, listen, if, if you're lusting, if you have a, a wandering eye, you know, you might say things to yourself like, well, you know, it's not like I really did anything. It's not like I actually had an affair. It's not like I actually committed adultery. Jesus is saying, yeah, but you know what? You know, your wandering eye is an indication that you have a wandering heart and, and, and that this could be the thing that happens. It's just a matter of time before it might happen. So cut it off before it starts. Deal with it before it deals with you. So how does Jesus tell you to deal with sin? Well, he says, he says if, you're, if, you're, if your eye causes you sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you sin, cut it off. It's like that guy, what was his name? Aaron Ralston. Remember Aaron Ralston a few years back? 
This was the guy that was doing some free climbing in the mountains of, of Moab in, in Utah. Uh, has an accident. He falls, gets his arm trapped between two boulders, and he's trapped so long. He's, he's there after 127 hours of being trapped. He decides to, to cut off his arm in order to save his life. And so in effect, Jesus is saying, listen, drastic times call for drastic measures. Now, he's not literally telling you to pluck out your eye. There'd be a lot of, you know, people missing eyes around here if, if, that was the, if that was the case. He wasn't literally telling you to cut off your hand. What he's saying is this. He's saying, you know what? If, if your sin is lust, then you might need to do some drastic measures. Maybe cut off your internet access. Maybe cut off that relationship that you have that you call, quote unquote, platonic. You know, take some drastic measures, some drastic steps. Deal with it before it deals with you. So David's problem was lust. And ultimately, this reminds us that, that perhaps one of the things that can hinder our unity, not only our unity with each other, but also our unity with God, would be our own personal sin. In fact, it was actually David who said these words in, in Psalm 66, verse 18. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so when I'm in willful sin and, 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 I, and I'm doing things and looking at things and, and, and I'm involved in things, that can affect my unity, my relationship with God. So here's David in, in the city of Hebron, the city of quote unquote unity, and yet there was anything but unity. There was civil war. Verse, verse one tells us there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. It's been well said that, that when we're not right with God, it's hard to be right with each other. It's occurred to me that sometimes our problems with, with each other have nothing to do with each other. It's, it's, it's our own sin. We're at war with ourselves. We're at war with God, and it comes out with our relationships with each other. It's hard to be right with each other when we're wrong with God. And so in the city of, uni of unity, there was disunity. But now as we pick it up in verses 6 through 21, we also see in Hebron that there was peace and forgiveness. Verse 6, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. Uh, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth, and he said, Am I a dog, a dog's head in, 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 in Judah? To this day I kept showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, and to his brothers, and to his friends, and I have not given you into the, into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today a, a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel over, and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Let's pause here. Now, as, as we read these words, we, let's kind of remember who the characters are. Remember, we talked about Abner last week. Now, who was Abner? Abner, as we mentioned, he was, was the commander of Saul's army. And so that meant that for years and years, he was Saul's right-hand man. So for like the last four decades, 40 years, uh, Abner was in this position of, of trust, this position of, of influence, even really this position of control over the king. And frankly, he wasn't willing to give that kind of power up overnight. So now when David comes up and, and David takes control of Judah, becomes the king of Judah, Abner wasn't going to give up without a fight. He wasn't just going to let David try to take the whole nation. So what does Abner do? He raises up Saul's last remaining son, Ishbosheth. 
Now, we mentioned last week that Ishbosheth was probably a nickname. It's a name that means in the, in the Hebrew, man of shame, shameful man. Scholars believe that he was probably Saul's least favorite son. And Abner feels that, that Ishbosheth is, is, is so weak minded and so weak of character, he could probably get Ishbosheth to, to do whatever he wanted him to do. Ishbosheth might have been the, the face of the kingdom, but frankly, Abner was the power behind the kingdom. And so Ishbosheth was just kind of a, a puppet king. He was the puppet, Abner was the puppeteer. He was the one pulling the strings. And so now Abner, kind of in the ultimate power play, ultimate power move, he decides to take what he feels like he deserves and he takes Saul's concubine for himself. But it was a power play, trying to, trying to make a grab for the kingdom. And, and when Ishbosheth confronts him, uh, Abner gets all bent out of shape and he's like, listen, I made you. you. You would be nothing without me. And now he decides he's gonna take his talents to David. Verse 12, and Abner sent messengers to David on, on his behalf saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all of Israel to you. And he said, good, I'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is that you shall not see my face unless you first bring me call David, I'm sorry, Saul's daughter. When, when you come to see my face, then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, uh, Saul's son, saying, "Give me my wife Michal, for whom I have paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines." And Ishbosheth sent and, and took her from her husband Paltiel, uh, the, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her the whole way to Bacharim. Uh, then Abner said to him, "Go and return." And he returned. We'll pause here. So now. Uh, Abner's wanting to make a deal with, with David. He's like, hey, let's play, let's play, let's make a deal. And David's like, okay, fine. But you know what? I want thrown into the deal, my ex-wife, Michal. Now remember, Michal was, was Saul's daughter. Uh, it was David's first wife. But when David had to flee for his life and, 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 and leave Jerusalem, at that moment, Saul gave his daughter to another man. His name was Paul Tiel. Well, now David, all these years later, he's like, you know what? If, if we're going to make a deal, you want to prove your loyalty to me, then, then bring back my ex-wife. Bring back McCall. Now, by the way, does David really need another wife? He's already got six, let alone a number of concubines that aren't even named. So he's got concubine after concubine, wife after wife, six different wives, and now he wants yet another wife. Uh, Chuck Swindoll in his commentary says, when was enough enough? He had a harem full of them and he still wasn't satisfied. You see, that's how it is with lust. Lust is a thirst that cannot be quenched. Or as it's been well said, lust is a craving of salt for a man who's dying for thirst. This was what was ruling, Saul, I'm sorry, what was ruling David. David had a, a thirst, a lust that couldn't be satisfied. Yes, he was trying to grow in power. Yes, these were political moves, but he's also a man driven by lust. And now verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel saying, for some time past, you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke to, uh, to Benjamin. And Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that, the, uh, all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin had thought good to do. When Abner came with, with 20 men to meet David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and, and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all of Israel to my lord the king that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. 
So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. And so now basically Abner is, 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 is becoming David's campaign manager. He's, he's, he's willing to go to, to, to city after city, you know, state after state, and kind of campaign on David's behalf and try to win the rest of the nation over on David's behalf. And so it now says that, that, that David made a feast with Abner and his men. Now listen, this was much more than just a, a political dinner party. You have to understand that, that in that culture, in that day, when, when you broke bread with one another, in that culture, they believed that's how you became one with each other. I've shared this before, but they believe that, that you know, when, when I take, the, uh, take a loaf of bread and I break off a piece for myself and then I give you the rest of the loaf, they believe that a part of me remained on that loaf. So therefore, when you took a piece of bread, you not only got a piece of bread, but you got a piece of me as well. And so they literally believe that by, by, by breaking bread together, you become one with each other. And that's why in that culture, whenever a peace treaty was made, it was always made over a meal. They always broke bread together because now they had become one with each other. And so what this was, this was a peace treaty. And that's why the end of verse 21 says, so David sent Abner away and he went in peace. They had made a peace treaty. Now, something else that's interesting about the city of Hebron I've already shared with you that the city of Hebron is a name that literally means unity, but it can also literally be translated communion. Communion. Listen, communion at its core is about unity. It's, it's common union, common unity. And so in essence, community is, is ultimately a reminder to you and I of the peace treaty that God made with us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Listen, the, the Bible teaches that, that, that our sin separates us from God, that our sin has made you and I God's enemy. And that's why Jesus died. That's why his blood was shed, so that, so that God could have peace with man and that man can have peace with God. Uh, Colossians 1.21. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Or again, Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, communion is, is a reminder of the peace that we can have with God because of Jesus Christ. The unity we can have with God because of Jesus. And listen, because we now have peace with God and unity with God, now we can have true unity with one another. However, let me just say that just because we have peace with God, that doesn't always mean that we're going to have peace with one another. You know, we are called the body of Christ, but as one pastor put it, listen, wherever the body is, there's going to be body odor. We're not always going to get along. But this is a reminder of the, of the peace. And so in this place called Hebron, this place called unity, the city of unity, this peace treaty was made between David and his enemy Abner. But now as we pick it up in verses 22 through 30, now we see that in Hebron, there was also revenge and refuge. Revenge and refuge. Verse 22. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from Arab and, and, and bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. And when Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told to Joab, Abner, the son of, of Ner, came to the king, and he let him go, and he, is, he, and he is gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king, and he said, what have you done? 
Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so, so that he's gone? You know that, that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to, to, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. And, and when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner re- re- returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside uh, into the midst of the gate and, and to, to speak to him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And, and afterward, when David heard of it, he, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and upon his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who, who has discharge or is leprous or has spindle or, or who falls by the sword or, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Now remember, this all goes back to last week's chapter, chapter two. Remember, in, in that chapter, we saw that, the, the, that there was this, this bitter blood feud between Joab and Abner. Remember why? Remember, there was, there was this, like, they call it this representative battle where there were 12 men to represent Joab and 12 men to represent, Abish, uh, sorry, to represent uh, Abner. And, and it, uh, evidently, Abner and his men cheated. And as a result, Asahel runs down Abner. He chases him down. Abner tries to warn him not once, but he warns him two different times to, 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 to turn around, to stop. He's like, you know what? I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to kill you. But Asahel refused to listen. He chases him down and jumps him anyway. And so Abner, in self-defense, ended up killing Asahel. Well, now, because of that, Joab now is becoming what the Old Testament law calls the avenger of blood. The avenger of blood. Now, remember, the the avenger of blood basically is is, is this. Whenever someone was killed, whenever someone was murdered, it then became the responsibility of the nearest living male relative to, to hunt down that killer, hunt down that murderer, and not stop hunting them down until you've avenged the death of your loved one. So that's Joab. He's the avenger of, of, of blood. Kind of like the movie Princess Bride, remember? Remember where, where Inigo Montoya is talking to the hero Wesley, and he's like, excuse me, but you don't have to have uh, six fingers on your left hand, do you? And he's like, no, but why do you ask? He's like, well, when I was a 10-year-old boy, the six-finger man, he came into my village and he killed my father. And when I find the six-finger man, I will say, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, now prepare to die. Well, now that's Joab. He's the avenger of blood. But now what's interesting is is that this takes place in the city of Hebron. And I shared with you already, the city of Hebron literally means unity. But did you know that that the city of Hebron was one of six cities that were known as the city of refuge? A city of refuge. Now, what's a city of refuge? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. A city of refuge was, was this. In that day, uh, if, if you accidentally murdered someone, if you accidentally killed someone, maybe it's a car accident, you didn't mean to do it and it just happened. Or maybe in this case, it was self-defense, like Abner would say. But if you accidentally killed someone, you could flee to what was called a city of refuge. And there, as long as you remain within the city walls of the city of refuge, you would be safe from the avenger of blood. The avenger of blood had no claim on you as long as you stayed within the walls of the city. However, verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 27 tells us that it was when Abner returned to Hebron. He's within the walls. He's inside the city. And that's when Joab stabbed him in the stomach. That's when Joab killed him. 
And so the thing that made this so egregious, the thing that made this so scandalous is that it happened in the very last place that it should have ever happened. It happened in the place where Abner should have been safe from the avenger of blood. And so revenge took place in the city of refuge. And now with that, as we pick it up in verse 31, down to the end of the chapter, we we have some lessons for us, lessons from Hebron. Verse 31, then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And the king uh, followed the beer. Uh, Beer is just an old word for coffin. Don't know why it just doesn't say coffin. Verse 32, then they buried Abner at Hebron and and the king lifted up his voice and he wept at the grave of Abner and and all the people wept and the king lamented before Abner saying, should should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered as as one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him and then all the people came to persuade David to eat uh, eat bread while while it was yet day. But David swore saying, God do so to me and, and more also if I even taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything the king did pleased all the people. And so all the people of Israel understood that day that, that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the, the sons of Zariah are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. As we read these words, we, we, we need to keep in mind that, that there was a backstory between Abner and David, right? You, you, there was this backstory. And you know, we talked about this last week. Remember, back in 1 Samuel chapter 26, uh, the, it was, the, Abner was the one that David had, had called out and publicly embarrassed, right? We talked about this last week. David uh, snuck into the camp of Saul while Saul was asleep. He steals David's spear and then later takes it, uh, announces to everyone, he says, hey, Abner, I have David's spear right here. I could have killed Saul. I'm sorry, I have, I have Saul's spear right here. I could have killed Saul in his sleep. It's your job to protect him. You, you, you stink at your job. And so there was no love lost between these two. Now, it's interesting. I, I read the words of one commentator, and again, th- this is just pure speculation, but it is kind of food for thought. It is something that kind of make us think. But one commentator believes that, that perhaps Abner stole David's job. You remember, David, what used to be the commander of Saul's army, right? And, and, and so this commentator thinks, you know what? Maybe Abner was kind of poisoning the well, so to say. Maybe it's kind of filling Saul's paranoid mind with, with all sorts of rumors about, uh, about David, and, and, and maybe kind of, kind of encourage Saul's rage against David. So that when David had to flee for his life, uh, Abner, uh, Abner, I'm sorry, Joab was there to, no, Abner was there to take David's position, to take his job. Now this commentator points out that he believes also that perhaps Abner was the one who had a role in in giving uh, Saul's uh, daughter, David's wife, to another man. That, that, that maybe Abner was involved. Maybe Abner was like, hey, you know what? Now that David's gone, you need to rid yourself of him. Completely break off all ties. Take your daughter and give her to someone else. Which may explain why David is making Abner bring her back. That maybe he's like, you know what? You had a hand in this. You were involved in this. You took my wife away from me. You want to prove your loyalty? Then make things right. Bring her back to me. But again, it's just speculation. We don't really know. But what we do know is it's very, very clear that these two had a very long personal history with each other. Now, in the end, although, although David wasn't perfect, but, but, but he did have a heart after God, the Bible says. 
And so in the end, he makes a peace treaty with Abner. And, and not only that, but he even grieves deeply at his funeral for him. Now, let me ask you, would you do that? I mean, listen, if, if you had the kind of history with someone that, that David had with Abner, would, 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 would you make a peace treaty with them? Would you grieve for them at their funeral? In fact, for that matter, would you even go to their funeral? You might be like, yeah, I, I'd go to their funeral. I want to make sure that sucker's dead. Now, it's interesting. In the city of Hebron, again, we call it the city of Hebron, the city of unity. Literally, it means unity. In the city of unity, David made a peace treaty with his enemy, with the man who was, who was a, a part of this plan to ruin David's life, Abner. He makes a peace treaty with him, and evidently his forgiveness was sincere. His forgiveness that he gave was, was, was authentic because now when Abner dies, he genuinely, deeply grieves at his funeral. But on the flip side, also in Hebron, and again, and again, keep in mind, the city of Hebron was a city of refuge. And so in the city of, of refuge, we have Joab. And, and Joab, so bent on revenge, so driven by this blood feud, that even though it was a city of refuge, he kills Abner in cold blood in the city of refuge. And so let me ask you this. Those of you that have been hurt by someone, those of you that have been wronged by someone, those of you that, that have someone in your life that every time you think of them, it, 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 it just dials up a flood of emotions. Let me ask you, are you a David or a Joab? Are you, are, 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 are you the kind of person that, that, that has a heart to make peace, a heart to forgive? Or are you the kind of person who, who's bent on revenge, bent on getting even? Are you a David or a Joab? You may remember back in March 30th, 1981. I think I was 11 years old at the time. That's when John Hinckley Jr. Uh, Jr. shot President Ronald Reagan. Now, at the time, the news said that, that he did it to impress the actress Jodie Foster. Now, at the time, however, Reagan wasn't the only one that shot, uh, got shot. Uh, police officer Thomas De De Delante got shot. Secret, uh, Secret Service agent uh, T Timothy McCarthy was shot. And so was Press Secretary James Brady. Now, Brady was shot in the head, permanently brain damaged, and confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life until he died. Now, many of you know that, that Brady went on to be the co-founder of, of the Brady campaign to try to put an end to gun violence. But more than one occasion, James Brady had publicly declared that he will never forgive John Hinckley Jr. But on the flip side was, was Ronald Reagan. And according to Reagan's son, uh, Michael Reagan, he said, my father forgave John Hinckley Jr., so do I. In fact, some of you may remember that, 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 that publicly, uh, Ronald Reagan publicly forgave Hinckley. In fact, within days of being shot, uh, he, he, he wanted to go back to work on, on April 11th, but before he went back to work at the White House, he was trying to set up a personal meeting where he could meet face-to-face -face with Hinckley to tell him that he forgave him, but his Secret Service agents wouldn't let him do it. They said it wasn't safe. Michael Reagan writes and says, says, what was good enough for my father is good enough for me. And then he adds, he says, you know what? My dad was one of those rare people who didn't just recite the Lord's Prayer. He lived it. When, when he asked God the Father to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, he meant it. And in fact, he said even after being shot, Reagan wasn't angry. He wasn't bitter. In fact, he was making jokes. In fact, when his son came to visit him in the, in the hospital room, he, he said, Mike, if, if you're ever going to get shot, don't be wearing a new suit. He's like, excuse me? 
He's like, well, I just got shot, right? And he's like, yeah. He says, he says well, uh, that blue suit I was wearing was brand new. It was the first time I ever wore it. And, and, and it had to be cut off of me. And now it's sitting over there in, in the corner in shreds. I'll never be able to wear that suit again. So that's why I'm telling you that if you're ever going to get shot, don't be wearing a new suit. Now, his daughter, Patty Davis, she said, quote, the following day, uh, my, my, my father said that he knew his physical healing was directly dependent on his ability to forgive John Hinckley. By showing me that forgiveness is key to everything, including physical health and healing, he gave me an example of Christ-like living. And remember, Jesus, in, in Mark chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. In other words, if our hearts are not right with God, then it indicates we're going to have problems with each other. Or think of it this way. If our hearts were wrong with each other, then it's hard to be right with God. As long as we have a heart that's at odds with each other, we're at odds with God. And so again, are you a David or a Joab? Are you a, a Reagan or a James Brady? When you've been hurt, when you've been wronged, are you, are you bent on revenge, bent on getting even? Or as Ephesians 4.32 puts it, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And so we can have a heart after revenge or a heart after God. Amen? So Father, we, we thank you that when you saved us, you gave us your heart. You took our heart of stone and you turned it into a heart of flesh, a heart that beats again, a heart that can love again, a heart that can forgive. So as you have forgiven us, now we have the power and the ability to forgive one another. And every one of us in this room, we, we are wounded men and women walking. We've been wounded and hurt by someone, somewhere. But Lord, our heart's desire, Lord, is to see your work done in them just as it was done in us. Forgive them as you have forgiven us. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.